Welcome to the Beer Edge Podcast. I'm Andy Crouch. We'll get into the show in a moment, but first I've got Greg Taylor on the line, and his company, Source Brewing Company, is a sponsor of the program. We're talking about Source Brewing's Inclusion and Diversity Scholarship. Hi, Greg. Tell us a little bit more about the scholarship. So looking around the brewing industry, one area we definitely think there could be some improvement is uh, the subject of inclusion and diversity. And we are proponents and we think it would make for you know, a lot you know, better, more creativity, um, different mindsets and cultures, views on things. And, you know, that always you know, variety is the spice of life. And we like to represent, you know, all beer has to offer and all the, uh, the culture and personality and that comes along with it. We think it's beautiful and want to celebrate it. So the way we thought we could make the most direct impact in the industry we love so much is by creating a scholarship to help someone who is underrepresented in the brewing industry get a world-class education. And we're partnering up with the Siebel Institute of Technology, America's oldest brewing school, to offer a full ride to do the concise course in brewing technology. We're excited to have Source Brewing as a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast. And Greg Taylor will be back with us at the bottom of the program. But in the meantime, I'd invite folks to check out Source Brewing's website at sourcebrewing.com for more information on the Inclusion and Diversity Scholarship and the brewery. When you envision the ideal experience for your brewery guests, point of sale probably isn't at the top of your list. It's the transactional finality to their visit. What you need is a point of service. Arrived is the first mobile, flexible, customizable point of service system built for craft breweries. It adapts and grows with you on-premise and online. Your staff will love the simplicity, your managers will love the world-class support team, and your guests will love that they can get the same delicious beer with the same amazing service from anywhere. Fall in love with your point of sale. Fall in love with Arrived. This week, we have Sam Calagione on the show, and we have a great discussion. But before we get to that conversation, I'd like to invite you to visit BeerEdge.com to sign up for our newsletter or grab some merch for Camp Rauk Beer and Defend Pilsner. We've got glasses, mugs, and t-shirts. And we definitely welcome you back to the Beer Edge podcast. After some time away, it's good to be back, and we have some exciting plans for the next few months. We start today with one of the most recognizable names in the beer industry at large. An aspiring rapper, occasional poet, famed brewery tinkerer, and now helping run one of the largest craft breweries in the world. Sam Calagione has had a storied and frenetic career. The co-founder of the Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, Sam Calagione's story began in 1995 when he and his wife Mariah opened Dogfish Head Brewings and Eats, the first brew pub in the state of Delaware. From the beginning, Dogfish had established a reputation for innovation. Sam famously used non-traditional ingredients to brew a wide range of unusual and creative beers. Now, to be sure, he was a master marketer, but one whose core philosophy was always tied to making the best beer possible. As Dogfish had continued to grow, so did Sam's reputation and role as a statesman and ambassador for craft beer at large. And during this time, Dogfish Head were friendly competitors with another brewery run by a gregarious and colorful spokesman for craft beer in Boston Beer's Jim Cook. The two breweries battled it out for a while there for the title of the world's strongest beer 
in the alcohol arms race of the mid-2000s, and were frequently featured together in media about craft beer. Fast forward to 2019, almost 25 years into Dogfish Head's journey, Sam and his wife Mariah sold the brewery to Boston Beer. The news surprised many in the world of craft beer, but it makes sense when you consider the long-standing relationship and respect shared by the two men. Now Sam has gone from running the smallest commercial brewery in the country to helping run one of the largest. He's gone from brewing a few gallons of beer at a time to being worth hundreds of millions of dollars. It's been a crazy ride. So from a porch in coastal Maine, we catch up with Sam to talk about the deal with Boston Beer two years on. Dogfish Head's recent innovations, including in NA or non-alcoholic beer, and whether the Brewers Association has provided enough leadership in the areas of racism and sexism within the craft beer industry. I also unearthed a never-before-seen television series proposal that Sam wanted to pitch with Michael Jackson, and we discuss whether beer can ever work on television. Here is our interview with Sam Calagione of Dogfish Head. Well, I'm psyched to be here and chat with you again, Andy. It's yeah, been it's too good. long. It has been a long time. It has been a long time. Uh, you know, in quite a long time since I think we shared a beer together. You know, whereabouts in the world am I finding you right now? I was in your fine city until last night, so I was working out of our uh, out of our Boston offices like Monday through Thursday, and then I drove up to Dogfish Maine late last night, crashed a tank of lager that I brewed with David Grinnell and the Sam Adams brew team. I have like a little one barrel, just home brewery up here in my cabin that I do R and D work at uh, and spend, spend a little bit more time up here in the summer. And so how often are you up in Maine now? Um, I've been based, I've just kind of been going between Mariah and I did that whole road trip from Miami to Maine. Mm -hmm. Um, and vis- visiting distributors and getting everyone excited for our big focus month, which is July. Um, and we just finished that like in early June. And so I'm, I'm based pretty much in Maine and Boston for most of June and July, and then back based in coastal Delaware for the rest of the year from end of July on. Hmm. And so in that time, I know, you know, previously you had spent a lot of time, you know, just on the road traveling around the country and obviously COVID impacted that. But, you know, are you are you getting out there still? Are you you visiting bar owners and distributors or is that something that maybe maybe more in the future? I'd say the retail side more in the future. Um, but that whole trip we literally drove a Tesla from our opening of our brew pub in Miami at the beginning of June um, all the way up the East Coast. I guess in, in May, all the way up the East Coast. And most of those was shooting film with the nature conservancy who's our partner for our big focus month of july mm-hmm. and visiting distrib- distributors uh but it was like interesting eddie because it was like just as every state was coming out of covid yeah so some some meetings were on a deck wearing mat- masks and then by the time we got up to maine most of the restrictions were gone so kind of felt like old old times again which has been awesome and what are the distributors telling you about how things are out there well, I would say <clears throat> different messages throughout because when we started down there, granted, Florida never seemed to really right. be too scared of COVID. So each state was different, you know, um, and, it, and it reflected on the health of the return of their uh, on-prem. <clears throat> but we really did finish the trip about two weeks ago, which is kind of right when most of the big uh, – you know, restrictions, socializing restrictions were lifted. So I'm sure it's changed a lot even since our trip. But like the broader answer is how things going out there. 
you know, I would say in the beer space, tons of, tons of talks about hazies and IPAs. Super excited for our hazio launch. Mm-hmm. Uh, sours, fruited sours, especially. It seemed like, you know, a lot of very small breweries, like tasting room breweries, are going hard at sours. So they love uh, talking about our sequench. But I'd say other than sours and C- and and IPAs, a lot of the energy of, on the trip on the way up was <clears throat> about the fourth category, whether we were talking about seltzer or Arcane cocktail launch or mm-hmm. is ranch water something that's going to be a national thing and what else is after seltzer. Lots of those kinds of discussions with, you know, distributors uh, as we made our way up the coast. Yeah. And, you know, seltzer is one of those things, and, you know, I'd plan to talk about it a little later, but we can get into it now. Obviously, Boston beer is just a, a juggernaut when it comes to, to non-beer brands, included, you know, including Twisted Tea and more recently Truly. You know, for you, obviously, you know, folks out, you know, the consumers and folks out, uh, you know, you know, especially off-premise are crazy passionate about hard, hard seltzers. You know, what about for you personally? Do you have passion for hard seltzer? Well, I mean, Dogfish has been a beyond beer mm-hmm. and beer company since since the day we opened. Like, in you know, we immediately started making beer wine hybrids in the '90s, like Raison d'Etre, beer mead hybrids, like Midas Touch, starting in '99. Opened one of the country's first craft distilleries 20 years ago. So, Dogfish has always, as you know, been about expanding the definition of beer. So, I do think seltzer falls into that broader definition you know we've been playing with putting different malts and different fruits together our whole journey and so that's really what seltzer's all about it's essentially taking a base fermented liquid that's like pre- pretty much just pre-distilled rum is 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 what the base is and then what can you do to it to make it really interesting provocative refreshing so the short answer is yeah we're having a blast um, and, and Dogfish is doing like a, a launch of a, at our own properties of our off-centered seltzer, and it's basically choosing one fruit variety that plays especially well with one hop variety. So it's basically hopped, hopped, lightly hopped uh, seltzers, uh, and we're just rolling that out in our Delaware properties. But like for example, at Dogfish Miami, one of the top three selling draft items is dogfish mohi dale mm-hmm. where we're basically taking our, our undiluted uh truly seltzer base uh and we're blending it with a session sour beer then we're mu- mu- muddling freshly squeezed florida cane stocks cane cane sugar stocks into it and muddling it with a uh, lime and 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 uh uh, and uh, mint, much like a mojito. So that's M O J I T, and then capital A L E. And so, you know, we we definitely love having seltzer in the mix as an ingredient. You know, not even just as a final product. I think about a year, or, a year and a half ago or so, I participated in a huge seltzer tasting. You know, here in Boston at at Craft Beer Cellar, a place you know well. Um, uh-huh. And we tasted yeah. through, I think, about fifty different seltzers, and kind of the near uniform opinion of the tasters at the time was that just most seltzers just weren't very good and they all tasted pretty similar. Uh, I will say that truly had two in the top three, um, you know, for, for flavor, nice. we, we were enjoying those, but you know, 
you know, you're talking a little bit about it, but, you know, do you think that as a broader category that, you know, breweries or, or producers of seltzer can innovate in terms of flavor or is that palette of flavors just, is it just too limited? Or maybe another way to ask, like, if we rewound to 1999, you know, how would you, you know, innovate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, innovate the seltzer category? Well, I mean, I think, honestly, it'd be kind of a lot like what we've done with Brand Truly, which is there's kind of this, you know, call it a generic, uh, homogenized, but monolithic uh, liquid expectation across the whole category of seltzer. Um, You know, the white can, you know, one, you know, fruit essence added uh, to the same base. Um, And with Truly, we've really taken that and gone really flavor forward with very, you know, colorful, dynamic, you know, evolutions of what a seltzer could be, whether it's tea-based or um, lemonade-based or now punch-based. And if you try them next to the other competitors, you know, they're just way more flavorful, you know. But like you said, I think a lot of seltzers want to play in that low-flavor space, and, and, you know, it's certainly one route towards sessionability. But I think Boston Beer is a company that, that likes to play with flavors. And, and we, I think the, the Trulies are flavored for it. I know the seltzers that we're doing our own property with a hop component are. And if, for example, if you look at the canned cocktail line from Dogfish, we've been working on it. It's literally the longest R&D project of my professional career because we started making cocktails with our, with our you know, craft distilled spirits uh, 19 years ago. Mm-hmm. We opened the distillery. We started our cocktail program in our locations, and we started doing our ready-to-drinks uh, about five years ago uh, out of our own properties and Crowlers and like our uh, 750 mil RTD called Sonic Archaeology. Um, so we've been playing around with that stuff for a long, long time, but we intentionally didn't come to market with our proposition being, okay, it, it needs to be a high noon fighter. It has to be 4.5 ABV and you know, hundred calories for us. It was like, Hey, we would make, you know, we've, we have a James Beard nominated cocktail program. We want our canned cocktails to be highly flavorful, uh, more cocktail, like not just in their sensory expression, but even in their ABV. So, you know, high noon's 4.5 ABV dogfish had every 12 ounce canned cocktail of ours has two foolproof shots in it. Um, so it's just a much more intense flavor forward, uh, offering. You have gone from running the smallest commercial brewery in the country to helping run one of the largest in Boston Beer Company. And you've gone from brewing at that time, I think, a, a few gallons of beer at a time uh, to being, you know, part of a company that is, you know, that is a billion dollar enterprise. You know, what kind of a crazy journey has that been for you? <laughs> it's been more exhilarating than exasperating because uh, <laughs> there's just so many, there's so many there were so many talented leaders that dogfish pre-merger that helped Mariah and I grow the brand. And then as we merged with Boston beer, that depth and breadth, you know, of the bench of just so many strong complimentary leaders is even, you know, exponentially more awesome. So I would say Andy, like I still spend, I would guess maybe 70% of my time on dogfish specific activities 20% 20% on our other, you know, Boston beer brands, uh, mostly around innovation and marketing stuff. And if, you know, spaces, the bricks and mortar brand experience spaces, which Dogfish has done a lot of, mm-hmm. uh, um, and then like 10% on my Boston beer board, you know, board member 
officer type type work. So that's kind of the split as it stands now. Uh, but yeah, we're having a blast. Mariah and I, and Mariah runs Boston Beer's social impact team. So she's got a really important leadership job at the overall company as well. She probably is now maybe 20 or 30% on dogfish and, uh, you know, 70, 80% mm. on BBC general. So we our, our roles have definitely evolved a lot since the merger. And for many years, uh, Boston Beer and Dogfish were friendly competitors in the world of what I think used to be called extreme brewing. And you battled it out, you know, for a while there for the title of the world's strongest beer and kind of the alcohol arms race of the mid 2000s. But you, you fast forward to yeah. 2019 and Boston Beer acquires Dogfish. You know, how did the conversation start about about doing that deal? Really, it started from Mariah and I. Uh, you know, Jim Cook, I was I was the chairman of the board of the Brewers Association, our trade group. And I know you're good buddies with Bob Pease and that, that mm-hmm. group. And uh, and then when I was chairman, Jim Cook was on the board. And so we had become real friendly, you know, a little over 10 years ago. Uh, and, and, uh, and then that led to Jim inviting Dogfish to do their first ever collaboration the Sam Adams brand has ever done with an American brewery, which was our Savor Flowers beer for the Saver Festival. I don't know, I guess that was eight or nine years ago now. Um, and I remember calling Mariah from Boston because I'd known Jim, you know, just from being at festivals and going sharing beers on the GABF or EBF floor. Um, and then in the context of the board meeting, but it was the first time I got to go to the Jamaica Plain Brewery was actually to brew with the Boston Beer team. I trucked up a bunch of distilled rose water that I distilled in our, our distillery Jim and his team got some edible flowers and we made this super cool beer with, you know, distilled rose water and edible flowers called Savor Flowers. Um, and uh, I remember calling Mariah from the hotel that night in Boston and be like, holy shit, Mariah, they're just like us. You know, they're passionate. They love to compete, but they, and they take recipe development super seriously, but they don't take themselves too seriously. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of fun. So that was kind of like, you know, uh, if that's the first moment I was like, huh, that could be really interesting if you look at how complementary our our products are, you know, with Sam being more of a lager brand, Dogfish being more IPAs and then be, be you know, strong in spirit in uh in tea and in seltzer, whereas we're strong in sours and in spirits. So it was just a really complementary culture and complementary portfolio that kind of led to the decision. And did you have any trepidation about the deal? Do you have any trepidation about the deal? Um, good question. Uh, I don't think so. I mean, I knew, you know, that maybe uh, there'd be a, a few folks that were passionate about focusing only on dogfish head, sure. you know, maybe salespeople or brewers. Um, so I expected there to be, with the news and the transition, some folks that chose not to stay on our journey. And there was a couple salespeople and a couple uh I think more salespeople actually, but it was, you know, only like, I don't know, like 5% mm-hmm. of our, our pre-merger workforce said, uh, you know, we're, we're going to go in a different direction. So that was actually heartwarming. Uh, so there's nothing really that was disappointing, I would say. It was just more, there were some unknowns and, and uh, we're mm-hmm. addressing them. I guess one other thing I will say, like I just had an awesome uh, virtual happy hour this morning with Horizon Distributing Leadership in Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of a distributor where even though when we announced the merger two and a half years ago or more than that, we said it's our intention to align our distribution network uh, you know, from coast to coast. Um, 
and we would go with the distributor that sold more of whichever brands liquids uh, in that state. You know, with Dogfish being a much smaller entity in the merger, that meant the only state that we sold more than BBC's portfolio was our home state of sure. Delaware. So we were very pop- public that we we wanted to just we wanted to uh, we wanted to uh, consolidate to the BBC wholesale network in the states where BBC was strong in the dogfish. And in most cases, the distributors worked really hard and really quickly with us to allow that to happen. But there were some states that took a long time, like we just got Rhode Island transferred. Uh, we're, we're, we're in the in, in movement in Vermont and, and Michigan, other places. But uh, um, I, I would say that 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 took longer than we, we'd hoped. You know, we were at, when we were at about 50 percent aligned when we merged and we're now on the doorstep of 90% distributor alignment. Uh, um, and, and that was, our goal is to be there within the first year and it's taken us two and a half and uh, lots of hard, hard work has gone into it. And so I'm thankful we're, we're at that number now. Uh, Boston Bears founder, Jim Cook has famously said that his succession plan for the company is to just not die. Uh, and God willing, you know, he can achieve that lofty goal, but what does a future look like for you at Boston Beer? Do you envision yourself, you know, eventually taking over for a, a role that like that Jim currently plays, or do you have a you know a separate lane, you know, that you sort of you know envision yourself you know continuing in? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, Jim and I have the same title. You know, we're brewer and founder mm-hmm. is our title. Uh, I'm brewer and founder of Dogfish, and, and uh, he's a brewer and founder of Sam Adams and, and BBC. Um, and I, I think he'd say the same thing, which is we, we're both super proud of all the leaders in, on our leadership team. And, for example, Dave Berwick, I know, is a bit, way better C, CEO than, than I would be, He's, you know, an awesome leader for a, a whole bunch of direct reports again, across a whole bunch of uh, leadership functions um, from the CFO to the head of sales, the head of marketing. Um, and he's great at that. Uh, whereas me, I, I, I'm, I, I think I'm, my talents for Boston Beer are more around innovation uh, and uh, working with the blenders and the makers and the brewers uh, and helping to grow energy and excitement around the innovation side of all of our brands and all of our spaces, right? Um, you know, including what we just did with the Miami space and evolving that. Um, so I think my 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 talent set are, is such that I'm in a really good position now, but I really am not marching towards, you know, uh, no no one at BBC is considering, you know, that that I'm on a path to do, say, BCEO or or uh, chairman of the board. I think I'm in, I'm in the right role as it stands right now. You talked a little bit earlier, you mentioned innovation, and we obviously talked earlier about kind of that friendly competitiveness between Sam Adams and Dogfish Head in that area. Um, and it just mm-hmm. seems in, in mm-hmm. sort of recent years, you know, perhaps for both Sam Adams and, and Dogfish Head, you know, both companies maybe have gotten a little more practical in their innovation. Uh, you know, I think for Dogfish for years, you know, part of the part of the charm of Dogfish was just doing kind of outlandish stuff for, you know, whether it was to grab attention or just because it was what you guys were passionate about, you know, is innovation still key to both brands uh, or is it kind of a, is there a new direction um, in, in terms of how you innovate? 
Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, as, as close to it as I, as I am, I'd say dogfish is more innovative than it's ever been when you think of things like the mojitail that we're doing mm-hmm. with, a, with a fresh-pressed uh, uh, cane syrup down there, or we just spent a bunch of money to design what we think is the absolute perfect functioning Randall. Remember our spicing devices? Mm-hmm. And we're install, installing those in new locations. Um, and even something like KZO is the first nationally distributed oat milk infused IPAs. You know, we know hazies have been made with oats for a long time, but it took us over a year to get a recipe right using actual oat milk and what that delivers to to create white space in a crowded space like hazies in terms of giving this hazy oat such a unique, you know, silky smooth mouthfeel. I think that's a, a pretty big innovation. Um, and canned cocktails, and how I mentioned, you know, using the real culinary ingredients in ours and and uh, being big in 7-ABV, using unexpected ingredients like honeyberries and balsamic vinegar in our canned cocktails, which is sort of our off-centered uh, philosophy. So I don't really think we've wavered from that innovation, you know, priority. Uh, but you're probably right. There's fewer dogfish liquids that go coast to coast in distribution, new innovation mm-hmm. liquids, you know, now that we are part of a portfolio company um, for our brand specifically. Um, but, you know, uh, I'd say Sam Adams is a brand that I think has done an amazing job in the last two years and kudos to Matt, our brand leader, on on focusing on innovative marketing, uh, maybe even more so than the innovation in new liquids. Mm-hmm. We've done a great job of evolving like our summer ale recipe and, tweaks to recipes or like the wicked hazy. Uh, but I, I would say he's with the cam- the cousin campaign and the marketing of Sam Adams. I think the Sam Adams brand's done an incredibly incredible job with brand innovation uh, separate from uh, recipe innovation. Um, but I'd also say both of our company, both of our brands, uh, non elks, both the just the haze and the lemon quest that, that use, they, they both share the technology that BBC we've installed in, in our Boston and Pennsylvania facilities to do non-alks using both a dealkalization process, more like what Heineken 0.0 does, and a low-gravity fermentation process, more like what Athletic Brewing Company mm-hmm. does. And I think it gives both of our non-alks an exponentially real beer ca- character. So I'd say that those are a list of just a few, I think, very real innovations uh, but to your point, I think we just have to do fewer, go going deeper with fewer innovations, but still being super innovative is, is, is what we do every day. Arrived all the way. It's a system built by people who worked in the industry and they regularly check in with their clients for not only support, but ways they can potentially grow or help you pivot and readjust as needed. I've worked with all the major systems out there and I would never pick another service, says Katie Neerling, the GM of Scott Brewstillery about arrived. You know, one of those recent innovation trends that you were just talking about, you know, that has been happening in craft beer for a little while and that I'm very much here for is is the NA or non-alcoholic beer um, you know, movement. And I know both, you know, Dogfish mm-hmm. and Sam as you as you've been saying have done some great work in this area. What for you? Why are you interested in pursuing NA projects like Lemon Quest? Well, you know, for, for me, it's, you know, our, our brand really over-indexes as outdoorsy, as active lifestyle oriented. You know, we have a, a, a fish as, a, as our logo um, and we were a very outdoorsy uh, brand. And we started innovating, you know, better for you or active lifestyle beers before that that was a category in or consideration for 
elk, elk bev, you know, kind of, uh, you know, discussions. And so starting with Namaste, you know, over a decade ago as a yoga themed white beer, but then six years ago with Sequench Ale, mm-hmm. as a beer that was designed on a molecular level to be as refreshing as scientifically possible. Um, and then slightly mighty, locale IPA, hazy O with the oat milk proposition. So for me, Lemon Quest is an extension of that long time commitment for do- brand dogfish to innovate in spaces that are interested, interesting to outdoorsy, active lifestyle oriented people. And, you know, the fact that I can be on a, a hot beach in Miami like I was a month and a half ago and have three beers, you know, while sitting on the beach and then go for a 20 mile, you know, uh, bike ride, uh, without worrying about, you know, my ability to drive a bike, Mm -hmm. uh, is pretty cool. You know, so the drinking occasions that lemon quest provides allows people to enjoy awesome, real beer character while they're, while they're exercising, not just after they're exercising while they're out, you know, exploring mother nature, not after they're out exploring mother nature. In the past year, the uh, beer industry has experienced a growing reckoning in several areas, including racism and sexism. Uh, have you been following the Rat Magnet Instagram account stories of sexism in the beer industry? Uh, is that the one that kind of set things off here in New England? I think it started, yes. right? Yes, so Brienne Allen, a you know one of the production managers yeah. at Notch in Salem. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, yeah, I mean, I have been watching it and uh, with great interest and with uh, with, with, with a, a level of emotion, you know, I know, I know some of the, the breweries and folks that have been, have been, uh, uh, brought up, uh, and, you know, I, 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 as you called it a day of reckoning, I think it's a great moment for us to stand up and take accountability for, you know, for opportunities to be more equitable in how everyone in our communities, uh, treated, uh, but I think it's made it. Uh, it's a it's a good moment in that people are 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 willing to have the discussion, even though it's a painful discussion. And uh, you know, in many cases, um, I, I, I'm I'm sure there were uh, things that were done that that uh, were inappropriate, uh, and and we're all going to kind of live through that that playing out. So I have been watching it with with interest and 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 great interest and great great sympathy, you know, sympathy for, for the folks who have been mistreated in our community, uh, throughout the years. And we've, you know, as you noted, you know, we, we've seen, you know, many big names sort of apologize or even step down from their positions and businesses over their you know prior conduct. Mm-hmm. Why do you think these inc- incidents went so unaddressed for so long in, in craft beer? You know, I don't know, Andy. And, and, uh, it, you know, is it because our industry in also over indexed in, in sort of lack of diversity mm-hmm. that, it, and it was also relatively over indexed in men versus women. Right. Um, you know, are things that I think about that have contributed to our challenges. I also don't know that our challenges in our industry are, are, that are being exposed are any less or more than any industry I just think ours was one that was slow to have a broad conversation compared to something like Hollywood. Um, so the good thing is the conversation is happening now, but it is interesting that our, our industry specifically took a while. And then once it happened, kind of the floodgates opened, right? 
And so these, you know, and one of the things that you're sort of noting here, obviously, you know, the craft brewing industry is is a massive industry. There's, you know, 8,000, 9,000 breweries out there, and each of them is, is sort of their own little kingdom in, in some respects. Uh, yeah. But in terms of like a, a broader leadership position, do you think the Brewers Association has provided enough leadership for its members in the areas of addressing racism and sexism within the craft beer industry? I do. I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's a hard it's a hard community to police mm-hmm. from a a log from a uh, tree group building in Boulder when you consider that the average American lives within nine miles of a local brewery and that there's 8,500 breweries. Like I think one, one thing we have to recognize is our industry is in, in a, a, a uniquely exposed uh, social setting in many regards. Cause so many of these breweries of the 8,500 ish breweries are super tiny tasting room breweries, right? right? So not only are they essentially operating outside the three-tier system, but they're operating, on, you know, tiny mom-and-pop startups that are inviting the public into their spaces. They're in the business of making and selling and serving alcohol, which we know is a, a controlled substance that at times is perceived as, you know, it, it, you know it, that people have to be careful how they act socially if they're having beverages, and it, and it can sometimes break down inhibitions for better and for worse. for uh, And so that's another unique dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, the fact that the, the average brewery is so tiny that they probably don't even have an HR department. Right. So I think that a, a lot of times what has, I think oftentimes as, as I've read and learned so much about the very real and inappropriate challenges that have happened, it's oftentimes not necessarily that the founders or leaders of these tiny companies uh, were, were proactively uh, treating people with inequality or in, in eth- unethically, um, it was that they didn't have the resources to even understand, you know, how they should be engaging on issues or incidents uh, happening within the, within their company. So I think those are really some contributing mm-hmm. factors that got us to to the place we are today. Do you have, you know, having run, you know, such a small brewery and now, now, you know, helping run one of the largest, what advice do you have for smaller breweries, you know, who are facing these challenges to try to, you know, either improve their culture or look within or, or seek, you know, HR help? What do you, you know, what advice do you have for them? Yeah. Well, I would say, you know, if you can't afford to have an H&R department, you at least need to have HR policies starting with, you know, a recognition that people come before products and caring about your people has to be the starting point of, of why and how you're starting a business, not caring about the products uh, that you make. And I would actually say, you know, checking in with the Brewers Association on what um, resources and learnings and articles from all their, you know, zillions of years of public publishing stuff that they have that can be helpful for a very small uh, brewery or company engages, you know, in the same way that the Brewers Association has a great uh, uh, technical um, committee and they can help brewers be better at making recipes. They also have some pretty great, you know, culture building uh, and sort of management uh, learning tools as well that can make, you know, people learn to care as much about the, 
operational side uh, of working with people as they do about the production side of working with ingredients. You once famously said that the beer industry is 99% asshole free. And in light of everything that has come out in, in the last year, do you think that was, is still true or was even ever the case? <laughs> uh, you got good memory. Uh, uh, no, I mean, I'll say I still think the beer, the beverage, I'll say the beer, craft beer community is 99% asshole free. I will still stick to that. Uh, and that's my personal perspective. Mm-hmm. But obviously, I opened my brewery and started talking about that and noticing that at a moment when there were only 600 breweries yeah. in America and you flash, flash forward to today and there's 8,500 breweries in America. So you, you could do the math. There's, there's more breweries, but I still think the percentage holds at, at 99. <laughs> you have long uh, <laughs> been interested in bringing beer to television. Um, and a decade ago, you starred on a short-lived show on Discovery called Brewmasters. It showcased uh, Dogfish Head and its search to brew sort of ancient and unusual beers. And then, you know, to go talk about a good memory and, and some Wayback Machine here, uh, you know, mm-hmm. years before that, you corresponded with beer writer Michael Jackson, who famously had his own show on PBS about beer, about doing a television series. And you had proposed a show called That's the Spirit a television series that answers the eternal question, what are you drinking? Um, you know, we've, do you, do you even remember that, that series? <laughs> how'd, you, how'd you get that information? I, I vaguely remembered Michael and I driving my pickup truck from DC to uh, Philly beer week and ideating on a TV show we could do together. That was uh that was dug up. I do my research. That was dug up through Michael Jackson's wow. ar- Michael Jackson's archives. A letter you wrote to him uh, back in I think ninety eight, <laughs> uh, something like that. So, Holy shit! So I've got copies of that, well, that letter. So, but uh, the question for you here is, you know, you know, we've seen wine and spirits and all types of food end up with successful TV series, but beers never really seem to catch on 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 television. Why do you think that is? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, uh, I think. One of the realities that we live through is uh, that the world's biggest beverage producing companies are also oftentimes some of the world's biggest advertising Mm -hmm. investment companies. And when they invest in uh, programs with certain networks or just media platforms, in recent in the recent era, it often comes with a contractual expectation that if that massive beverage company is paying money to promote their products on a network, then the then they expect that network not to create content that gives exposure to mm-hmm. brands in their in their industry that are not paying for the right to share their story on those networks, if that makes sense. It does. And that, and that sort of tracks with, you know, at the time, you know, the late Anthony Bourdain, uh, who I think shared a production company with Brewmasters, you know, had tweeted out that, you know, Brewmasters was going to be canceled due to pressure from a large beer company who threatened to pull advertising. Uh, So was that what, was that the ultimate thing that happened with Brewmasters? Well, I don't want to get into any accusatory or, you know, libel mm. uh, statements. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say that Anthony Bourdain uh, is a, will be sore, sorely missed as, as a, 
uh, a voice of passion for makers in all industries and artists in all industries. So I appreciated what he added to that conversation, but I've kind of said my, my piece on it. Sure. That's fair. Um, so do you think that, yeah. you know, absent, you know, if we could put aside the advertising issues, which are obviously are considerable, yeah. you know, do you think beer can work on yeah. TV? You know, I'll try to answer and I'll throw it back. You're, you're a long time vet like me. I, I, you know, honestly, it's, uh, you know, I'm a beer geek first and like, you know, I consider myself a brewer before I consider myself a businessman, but I love coming up with, you know, canned cocktail recipes as much as I do mm-hmm. something like KZO. Um, so what, I, what I'm getting at is I, I, I do wonder in this current moment, if you look at how the growth is really accelerating in the fourth category, you know, that includes everything from canned cocktails to uh, ranch waters to seltzers to FMBs. I, I, I think there's still a lot of excitement and innovation to come in the world of craft beer. But I, I do think perhaps with the, the 20 to 40-year-old set, 21 to 40-year-old 40, 40 set, that not only is now buying the highest volume of of elk beverages compared to older drinkers, but is also the target demo for media outlets, TV stations, etc. I think for a show about beverages to be successful, it, you're better off trying to make it about, uh, you know, all interesting craft beverages. So mm-hmm. you can talk about kombucha, kombucha, can cocktails, beer, kind of all in one series. I think there's still space for something like that. Uh, but I do think it'd be pretty hard to do a, a show just around craft beer on a major network right now. Well, that was your idea for That's the Spirit. It was to cover, you know, beer and... 97. Yeah, that's it. And, and I've, I've, got the, I've got the whole proposal you wrote out, episode by episode. So, th- And that's basically what you just Holy described. Shit. So you were just ahead of your time by 24 years. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So what is Michael Jackson? One of the things you're talking about here is just sort of, you know, sort of the younger, you know, you know, drinker set is also kind of interested, Mm -hmm. you know, they get their media in different ways. It's not, it's not just through standardized television shows that come on at a certain time uh, and that you have to watch like it it was many years ago, but we've also moved into a whole new area of social media and influencers. Um, What kind of, you know, experience has Dogfish had had with, you know, with influencers in particular, do you see them as kind of a, a future way of, of you know, helping to promote you know craft beer and, and and maybe dogfish in particular? You know, for us, you know, influencers is not a term that I I put specific stock into as it's kind of come to the fore, you know, the forefront in the social media uh, moment. You know, you know, I think of Beer Edge as as an influencer platform. I think of Brewbound and Beer Advocate, um, and and so, but in the, in the broadest definition of influencers, that is actually something Dogfish has always cared about to help us tell our our story. Meaning, one of the things that excited me most about opening Dogfish in Coastal Delaware was. We get to live at the beach. I can paddleboard or bike every day around, but that we're two hours from DC, Baltimore, Philly, and three and a half from Manhattan. So I could drive my pickup truck to deliver the beer in these cities, and I would, you know, take beer around to accounts. And the next morning, I would take beer to media outlets, mm-hmm. you know, Bon Appetit, Art Forum Magazine, Interview Magazine, uh, Philadelphia Inquirer, da 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 da. 
Um, and that's really a big part of how we grew our brand was even when we were a tiny brewery, we were aiming big uh, in terms of, hey, we believe our beers are so unique and so storyful that they weren't, you know, coverage in media outlets, even if those media outlets aren't specific to beer. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I think the the, uh, uh, the broadest definition of influencer, i.e., you know, storytellers in the media have been totally you know, uh, very much important to Dogfish Head's journey uh, since the beginning. Now, to sort of circle back to something you said at the beginning of the interview, you know, mm-hmm. you are often you know the face of Dogfish and the person most closely associated with the company and the brand. But you are you know, obviously you're far from the only important influence there. And you know, beyond your talented team of brewers and admin folks and the PR squad and the rest of the staff, your wife Mariah has been there, you know, building the company with you since its founding. You know, how crucial has she been to Dogfish Head's success? Well, absolutely crucial. You know, I think of this road trip we just went on with the Nature Conservancy, and we went over a million dollars that Dogfish donated to the Nature Conservancy. That was all Mariah's decision in the early days to say, hey, we're finally profitable, Sam. Let's start making sure we prioritize giving back to the communities that give us our sustenance. Um, and so, she's always just had a really good view of community building. Uh, whereas I, you know, I'm, I'm more brand building. I'd say she's more community building. And then on the social media side, she's been amazing as sort of the digital voice of our brand. I'm not on any social platforms, but she's been the digital voice of our brand. Uh, you know, since there was such a thing of, as social media and dogfish has over 1.1 million followers on social media. There's now a team of great people doing it. But that really all started from Mariah's prowess in that area. Um, so she's 100 percent, you know, is responsible for the uh, success of a mom and pop company as, as me, as, as the pop is. And how challenging has it been, you know, sort of balancing family life and, and a co-worker relationship with your spouse and building Dogfish Head? Well, I'm doing this interview with you on a cold, rainy day in coastal Maine from an open, exposed uh, porch because I lost. She took the inside office. I'm <laughs> stuck on a porch today. So that's to tell you something. Uh, um, so, so no, I mean, in all seriousness, like at the beginning of the chat, Andy, we were talking about, oh, is it nice to be getting back out into the trade? You know, our jobs, yours and mine was kind of going to where the events were mm. back when there were real events and we'll get back there. But I will say, you know, COVID's, it's bittersweet, right? We get to spend more time with, we, Mariah and I have gotten to spend more time with our college age kids because they've done more virtually. So mm-hmm. that's the sweet part of the, the bittersweet. But the other part is Mariah and I working together for 26 years, we had, had a cadence where the expectation was I was on the road yeah. you know, 20 or 30% of the time. And now I'm in the next room on a computer and she's kind of like, I can tell she's like, when are you going on the fucking road again? You know? <laughs> I need, we, need to get, we need to get back into that cadence. Absence can grow, make the heart grow fonder. Right. So uh, we have a sense of humor about it, but we're definitely a little bit out of our rhythm in that regard. Welcome back to our conversation with Greg Taylor of Source Brewing, a sponsor of the Beer Edge podcast. You also have some other exciting news. Why don't you tell us about uh, the new location? Source Brewing will be opening up our second location. It's going to be, uh, so we have the Farmhouse Brewery in Colts Neck, and this will be Source Urban Brewery in the heart of Fishtown neighborhood of Philadelphia, which is really exciting. There's a lot of 
creative and artistic energy with bars and restaurants and, and other artists in town that we're, we're really looking forward to moving in there and um, delivering some excellent beer drinking experiences. If we could direct people um, to careers at sourcebrewing.com, uh, if you're qualified for our diversity and inclusion scholarship, so you're part of a, a group that may be underrepresented in the brewing industry, this can be females, ethnic minorities, uh, transgender, you know, any sort of, um, you know, underrepresented group, you're eligible for the scholarship. So it could shoot us an email to careers at sourcebrewing.com and just tell us why you're interested in getting in the brewing industry. Also, if people are in the Philadelphia area and looking for employment as chefs, beer tenders, hostesses, line cooks, we would love to hear from you. And uh, we encourage you to apply also at careers at sourcebrewing.com. Thanks for listening to the Beer Edge podcast. My partner John Hall and I work hard to bring you fresh and insightful content related to the ever-changing world of craft beer. We're passionate about beer and independent journalism. If you're interested in supporting Beer Edge, visit our website, beeredge.com, which is updated regularly with new content, interviews, and articles. Please also consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your episodes. You can also subscribe to the Beer Edge newsletter on our website. Is there anyone you think that we should be talking to? Please drop us a line at andy at beeredge.com with your thoughts. Thanks for your support. Go to Arrive.com to set up a free, customized demo with an Arrived consultant and see how a point of sale can make all the difference in your guest experience, staff satisfaction, and bottom line. Chances are, a switch to Arrive will save you time, money, and a whole lot of headaches. Arrive.com. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D.com. Because there's no I in Arrived.